Hey, everybody, and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here, and I'm excited to welcome to the show today my friend Sarah Absher, who is a candidate for our local school board. And uh, today, Sarah's going to tell us a little bit about um, why she's running, but she's going to speak specifically to um, a, an issue that we talk a lot about here on Healthy Discourse, and that is both medical freedom and parental rights within our school systems nationwide. And so welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks, Emily. Um, and uh, I'm excited to talk to your listeners about a topic I'm very passionate about, which is medical freedom. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm so glad that you're here. And um, actually, Sarah, before we dig into kind of our primary topic, will you just tell uh, our audience a little bit more about you and what led you to run for school board? Because we are always telling our listeners to get involved in the public square and the areas of their expertise and interest. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and um, Emily, you just uh, hit it right on um, the, the nail on the, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. But uh, you, 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 said it perfectly last podcast um, about how it's really important to get involved even when you think, well, who am I? Why would I get involved in this? You know, surely there are other people because that's exactly how I felt. I'm, I'm a nurse. I'm a mom, wife, a normal person, not a politician. And so I never thought I would be running for anything. Um, but over the last two years of COVID, um, where my son suffered like so many other kids, I mm -hmm. was just, I, I just felt compelled to do something. I felt like God was calling me to step into the arena and it's been quite a whirlwind, but it's actually been uh, really great to talk to other patriots who are very grateful that all kinds of people who are not politicians are stepping up to the plate. Yeah. And um, I know in our local races, I know um, personally five or six candidates and not one of them is a politician with any experience in any of this. And I think that what is what around the country we're seeing that explosion. And to me, it's really encouraging with all of the things that are going on in the world to see so many quote real people wanting to serve as as representatives of their constituents and not to take an agenda to a position but instead to really represent the interests of their friends that live in the community that they're representing and um, so that's really exciting um, so specifically with you said you know what happened over the last two years that really drove you into this can you give us some um, specifics as far as things that you have um, learned. And I know you've done a lot of digging and research, which is, is really great because um, I think that you've just, you've helped me and watching your videos and, and listening to things that you've said at some of our forums locally and understanding of some of these issues that on the face seem like they may be great and for the greater good. But in fact, when we dig into the details where so many things are often hidden, we see that in fact, what it looks like on the surface isn't real or isn't the, the full truth, at least. So can you share some of those issues that kind of 
pushed you into this, especially when it comes to the medical freedom aspect, like we were talking about? Absolutely. And so I think the main crux of the crux of the issue is, do you have the right to guide your child's life or does the government? Um, Mm -hmm. And how that is manifesting is a hallmark of medical ethics, which is informed consent. And um, so from the hospital I work at. It's a big teaching hospital in the area um, in 2021. And a lot of people assume I resigned because I didn't want to get the vaccine. And had I not resigned in the beginning of 2021, that may have been the case. But I actually resigned over vaccine talking points that they gave to us. And again, I'm not necessarily anti-vax. I'm anti-coercion. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's not a blanket medical intervention for every single person. That's just silly. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's a decision that a patient should have the right to make with their physician and nobody else really needs to be involved. Um, And so when, you know, basically we were told to tell our patients that this vaccine was approved and a lot of, and when I raised concerns about this and I said, well, it's not approved, you know, they need to know they're enrolling in a pharmaceutical trial. So as an Mm -hmm. oncology nurse, and we did a ton of clinical trials. Um, in oncology and the nurse's job in in that circumstance is to get informed consent. And you have to go over, you know, all of the risks and the benefits and, you know, hey, you need to understand this is a clinical trial in language the patient understands. So to all of a sudden go from that to, well, it technically is authorized under an emergency authorization. I'm like, if you're not telling the patient that they're participating in a clinical trial, that is not informed consent. I have a problem with that. I'm not giving this. And so- Yeah, I, on the way out, I leaked the documents to the media um, because I, I was so shocked. And what I've been really disappointed with is just that it hasn't shocked more people in the medical community, obviously present company excluded. But um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it, I was really and I don't know if you guys had this experience, but even though there's been such a, a strong group of warriors that have really been pushing for this, the 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 vast majority have been silent. And so that's been really not necessarily they're not speaking against a lot of them but they're not speaking up for us and i think Mm -hmm. physicians and nurses and and anyone in in medicine knows what's right and um you know it's been disappointing so that's really what got me onto this you know into this journey and then Mm -hmm. what i said to myself is what can i do well, I saw our children were really suffering. And so I started to look into, well, who runs the schools? Who makes these decisions? And again, not a politician was not, you know, plot. This was not in my cards, I thought. But, um, you know, I, I started to look at what my son was learning. And I was so shocked because it, 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 it's true. Now, a lot of these concepts, um, social justice, Marxism, we're all told it's a conspiracy theory, theory that, our kids are being taught this, but if you just Google in their, um, on their Chromebooks, right, the word critical race, you know, the phrase critical race theory, you won't find that. But if you Google certain words or search certain words in their curriculum, you, you start to see um, it's an emphasis on um, you know, equity rather than equality. And these are very subtle things. And I'm really been getting an education in these, but mm-hmm. uh, things, but where, where, the intersection is with informed consent and medical freedom is we have a government that thinks that every service for the child should be provided at the school, 
right. regardless, you know, we have a department of health and human services. So children who are from disadvantaged backgrounds certainly have the ability to use Medicaid and go to, so why do we need clinics in the schools, which mm -hmm. we, we just opened a second one, a ribbon cutting um, for this. And it's not for sick visits, right? It's for well visits. And so there is, there are two fully functioning clinics with nurses and nurse practitioners in the public schools. And I just, I don't think that that's appropriate because the, and everyone goes, well, what's wrong with that? You know, expanding services. Okay. Again, the problem with that is it's all done behind our backs. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get into informed consent because I didn't know this. There is a general statute. I believe it's 90.5, but don't quote me on that. You can, it's just under, um, it's grouped under all the medical kind of consent statutes in the, um, from the North Carolina General Assembly. Basically, if your child, it does not matter what their age, so informed consent for certain things, the age of informed consent in North Carolina for mental health services, birth control services, not, of course, not including abortion, but birth control services, STD treatment, um, the, that, that age group, it, so somebody as young as 12, for example, can mm -hmm. get pulled into um, the office by a counselor and the counselor can go, what's going on? And if the child says, well, I think I'm a boy today, not a girl. And, you know, the standard of care now is affirming therapy. And all of a sudden they're manipulating this child and they don't necessarily have to tell the parents if it falls under the umbrella of mental health. And that is shocking to me. Yeah, totally. And I mean, we hear uh, stories from around the country of this kind of thing where um, there's like clothing closets at school, not for disadvantaged students, but for those that change their gender when they come to school uh, to no knowledge of the parents. And, um, you know, and sometimes the mental health crises that happens from that when you're li living two lives as a preteen, um, that is a lot on a child, not to mention that um, this whole idea that when kids are school at school, they're our kids and they're no longer the parents' um, children. I just, it, it's baffling to me how quickly we've de devolved into a situation where instead of saying, oh, we want all the parents in the schools, we want everyone here to help and be involved and participate to now, the goal is keep them out. And what we do here doesn't leak out and we're in charge. It seems like that's happened very quickly. And perhaps um, just like with many other things, I don't know if COVID highlighted that or was um, you know, it was sped things up when it came to, to what was happening. But certainly it's, it's, it's been a highlight as far as what is actually happening and who gets to decide, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it did speed it up because a lot of the justification for some of these more radical interventions um, is, oh, well, the kids have are having a really tough time because of COVID. And that's why I'm very careful with my language there. I never in debate, um, you know, talking, debating other potential school board members, I never say it was COVID that did it. I say it was the failed COVID policies. Absolutely. I agree fully. Um, so yes, and that this is important. Uh, much of our audience is in North Carolina, that we understand as parents that, as Sarah said, informed consent, even in a school that is, you don't think that your child is going to receive medical services there. But when it comes to mental health or health, the age of consent in North Carolina for anything that is FDA approved 
or, uh, and you might be able to highlight that statute a little better than I can even, they can consent just like if they go back in a room with a doctor or whatever, a nurse, and you're not there, that there are things that ha can happen that you're not even aware of. Um, and that's something that I would love to see our legislature change. They did with anything that is emergency use authorization, like the COVID shots, that that does require um, a child to be older. But anything that is FDA approved or I guess the, the standard of care even can be administered or, or services can be offered and received at the age of 12. Yeah, and, and actually, honestly, um, technically, technically zero because for certain things, for example, and, and this is where people need to be, again, some people might say, oh, it's a conspiracy theory, but, you know, uh, I think uh, your husband, I think Dr. Wiggy said um, on your last podcast, uh, we didn't ever think we could see what we saw in the last two years. So before we go ahead and say, oh, you know, that could never happen here, well, famous last words, but mm -hmm. um, for certain mental health services, if you can imagine this, right, a kid is, you know, having issues, the counselor starts talking to the kid, is, is kind of affirming certain issues, the kid makes an off the cuff remark, oh, my parents don't understand. And the standard of care with affirming therapy is, oh, are you saying your parents aren't affirming your, and then all of a sudden, um, and we're already seeing this in California, by the way. Um, yeah all of a sudden the state can intervene and potentially take away that child. It has right. happened. In fact, there's a case where a kid committed suicide because she was basically bullied into thinking she was a boy. The school, the, her mom, when she found out was like, no, no, no. And, um, and the school said, oh, if you're not going to affirm her, that's child abuse. She was in the foster care system, wanted to stop transitioning. It, it just, it was a whole issue. And she walked in front of a train and that is, horrifying and oh my um, goodness yeah it is think it's horrifying, horrifying. Think about what what affirming therapy can really do to children who are confused in a very vulnerable time it's very concerning yeah well and let's just let's just go back to that to say like children that are in going through challenging times that are going to a trusted resource inside of the school system trying to help or get, receive help and then instead of bringing the parent in to be a part of this trusted team which is what it how it seem, has always been now the the parent becomes the enemy and that's what the child a very impressionable child is is told and so you know this division that already during those, especially preteen and teenage years and, and, and going through the stages of adolescence where, um, you know, the identity becomes one's own versus, you know, being a, an extension of the parent kind of thing. And to exasperate that rather than to pull the parent into the conversation, how can we think that that is helpful to children and, you know, this whole, like you said, affirming children do not need to be affirmed in the way that you're talking about affirm affirmation to me is you matter. You're important. You're loved. You're a child of God. I'm mm -hmm. proud to be your mother. Um, I'm proud of you. You know, I'm so glad you're my son. I say these things to my kids all the time. And especially my adopted sons need to hear that. 
Um, they all need to hear that. But affirmation in the way you're talking about is much different, right? Absolutely. And um, one way to think of it is think if we used affirmation therapy for any other kind of body dysmorphia issue, right? Like anorexia, would we say to a child, a, a girl, especially because who this really affects, um, there's been studies that the transgender push has really affected young girls. Um, we're mm -hmm. talking, you know, 10 to, which is, look, it's a hard time for anybody that age, but especially for girls, you know, 10 mm -hmm. to 13, 14. If we affirmed a girl who was struggling with anorexia and said, hey, you're really looking nice and thin, keep up the good work. I mean, that's ridiculous. We would never do yeah. that. It's so damaging. Right. It is. And, and it's just really interesting because like you said, I think it's fascinating that that's the demographic that struggles with, um, with, um, transgenderism the most, because I, I had a conversation with my mom about this because I totally forgot about it. And then as these conversations have arisen, I was, I was reminded, I remember when I was probably 10 telling her that I wished I was a boy and it did not mean that I actually wanted to become a boy, but I I'm certain if I had said that now that it would look much different. What it looked like was I was a good gymnast and um, so were many of my friends and we were not particularly girly yet. That all changed a few years after. Um, and we were truly a little bit jealous because all of our friends who played football and baseball got all this attention and us gymnasts were really great. And we did all the same things and got the state championships and whatever. And um, we kind of were, we're like, wow, well, why don't we get as much affirmation as they do? Wow. It would just be better to be a boy, right? Like that was the whole yes. premise of the whole thing. But I'm, I feel confident if I had said that now that it would be handled so incredibly different. And that's just sad because let me tell you, I didn't really want to live my life as a right. boy. It was the way that their sports were looked at from the broader audience that, you know, I wanted people to look at our sport that way. That's really what it boiled down to. Right. And so it's really sad to me that we're taking these very common, um, you know, coming of age challenges and real questions that are perfectly fine to ask and to consider and that are part of growing up and to, instead of helping a child walk through them and go through the dip, the sometimes hard steps of what that looks like. Cause growing up in adolescence is hard to Absolutely. just say, okay, well, whatever you want. And it's not just in transgenderism, it's in all of it, right? Like I know in our school system, there are middle school girls gr dressing up as animals every day and wanting people to talk, tell, address them as a cat. And meow at them. Like, I know for sure right. that that's happened because I've had several friends who have told me that their children are interacting with what is called furries in middle school. So then there's that whole thing, right? <laughs> and, and right. And so we know that kids are just trying to find their place in the world. And, you know, if somebody, to go back to your example, which I think is a great example, if somebody hadn't bothered to look at you as a unique individual creation and say, well, Emily, let's talk about why you're feeling this way and get to the root that really you were just feeling left out because the boys got more attention. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody had just been like, oh, Emily, I think, I think you're actually a boy and really pushed you and gave you, and then all of a sudden you're getting the attention that you craved, right? Mm -hmm. You're special because of that. That is so insidious. And honestly, that is where the issue is. And you made a really good point earlier about um, kind of fracturing, 
fracturing a teenager from the family unit. And I mm-hmm. think that that's ultimately what the goal is. I mean, this is this is a this is really a battle of good and evil. But mm-hmm. um, when you fracture somebody from their family unit, what will you think about the two most strong units um, in society? That would be the family and the church. And so, if you're telling a kid, oh, you know, these they they don't really understand you. You know, uh, we understand you better. Then all of a sudden, you are manipulating that child at a vulnerable age um, to basically engage in radical behaviors. And Mm -hmm. I think that might be the goal. I I don't know. Yeah. And I think that's the hard thing is it it is hard to sit around and think about what is this actually trying to accomplish, right? Because it, it, it seems to um, fly in the face of everything that we've always been taught, even from a secular culture of, you know, working hard, becoming, you know, who you are and owning that, owning who you are and that kind of thing. But now we're saying no change who you are, right? Like it's a whole different, different um, mindset. And it is hard to understand what the end game is because on the surface, even to me, it seems so incredibly destructive for so many reasons. And it's, I don't think that it is a coincidence that the, self-harm and suicide rates for children that that transition um, and or just live a transgender lifestyle have significantly elevated levels of mental illness, self-harm and suicide. Um, And my question is, why are we not looking at that and maybe thinking that what we're doing is probably not what's actually best for the kids? So that that's a, a big you know, question that I have. So Sarah, back to, back to schools and what is happening and who decides. Um, Tell me just, and for our audiences, uh, so so that they can know when they're going to the polls in their own cities, what is it that we need to look for? Who is making these decisions and how can we, if we're saying, if we believe as parents, I'm the parent, I deserve a seat at the table, if nothing else, I need to be involved in these conversations. And this is not what I want my child to be taught. And this whole affirming therapy thing is not what I stand for. How can we, as parents who see this coming, look for the decision makers that maybe need to be changed or addressed? Or what does that look like? Who do, who do we go to and how can it change? No, I think that's a great question because what I have noticed is everybody that's running right now, I think is running for the right reasons. I don't think, I think they just have different ideas of what is going to help. And mm-hmm. what I have noticed is you have a lot of school board candidates saying, oh, well, the school board, you know, they don't really have control over this. The state does this and the state says that. And I just find that very fascinating because typically who tends to run for school board are people who have an education background and it's a, it look, education is a racket part of, part of kind of the education industry, like whether it's private curriculum companies, all, all of this is so if you're too close to it, you can't see that there's mm-hmm. actually a different way. You know, we don't have to proceed and just assume that certain things are true. For example, a lot of the funding that we accept, and it's not an all or nothing thing. You know, a lot of the funding we accept are individual grants, but all of these grants come with strings attached. So Mm -hmm. if we could stop taking as much federal and state funding, we wouldn't have as much federal and state control 
kind of the boot of, of the federal and state government on our on our necks and we would have more local control. But it means saying, look, I'm willing to walk away from some of this funding. And so, of course, people get very their feathers get ruffled when you even suggest not taking every scrap of funding the government tosses your way. And mm-hmm. the problem with that is we end up spending more money meeting the standards that the government sets out for the kids. And we have a lot of duplication of services. For example, like I was saying, why do we have medical clinics in schools when we have the Department of Health and Human Services? So right. I think there's just this tendency to say we need more. We need more money. You know, in, in our county, we have 80 schools and the proposed budget for next year is a little under three quarters of a billion dollars. Billion oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. I did not realize it was that high. That's yep. It's pretty shocking. So how, how much is have you done the math? How much is that per student? Um, I think the last figure that I looked at is we spend um, typically between 10 grand to 15 grand, depending on um, whether they're in uh, elementary versus, uh, you know, middle or high school, but we spend Mm -hmm. about 10 to 15 grand per student. Wow. That's yeah. Wow. Um, And then uh, we, one last thing I just want to touch on too is, um, as far as school choice goes, I know that that's something that here in North Carolina, we have a great program set up. We have the Opportunity Scholarship, which not that many people know about, uh, mm-hmm. but at, at our kids' private school, um, it's, it is it is the most diverse private school in the state of North Carolina here in Winston-Salem. It's kind of, you know, not one of the big popular private schools around, but um you know, it, a lot of our kids are do are, are do are on the opportunity scholarship because their parents seek out those opportunities and that kind of thing. Um, where do you see school choice going in the future with some of the um, uncertainty and questions that parents have, especially in North Carolina, about their you know district schools and that kind of thing? Yeah, so I think that what's going to keep happening is more kids who have parents who are engaged are going to get pulled out of the public school system. And I actually don't blame those parents. Um, It's funny to hear somebody who's running for school board say that, but Mm -hmm. um, if we're not doing a good job, your kids shouldn't suffer for it. And so, um, you know, what that, but then what ends up happening as these kids leave, which is certainly they're right because. Again, opportunity, it's, it's up to every parent to make the best opportunity for their kids. But what that leaves is parents who maybe struggle with substance abuse um, or, you know, single moms. And, and so then that makes up a much larger percentage of the public school population. And right. so we, I think part of what we have to do as board members, and this is one thing where people don't, again, thinking outside of the box. Um, we need to talk directly to the community and say, I'm going to help you guys navigate this morass that mm-hmm. is public education so that mm-hmm. you can make an informed decision. Because I'll tell you, as I've dug deeper, I see they do not make this easy. Now they have to make the meetings public, right? They have to put certain records. But when I tell you they bury it, they bury it. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, yeah. So, oh, and, and right, that's, that's on purpose. Um, I don't think there's a big conspiracy theory again, but if I can't easily get to the school budget by clicking a button that says budget, mm-hmm. okay, you, you've just made it harder for a working parent, right? Who has a, a ton of other things going on. So um, my plan is to take 
the information to the people like I've already been doing in my campaign and say, hey, did y'all know about this? Because mm -hmm. I think that's really what has blown the lid off of this is the reason we all were so shocked out of complacency is this happened with me. I'm standing behind my son watching him learn. Mm -hmm. And I put that in quotation marks, learn. And I, and I, and he was in AP classes. I said, is it always like this, honey? And he's like, I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> no, yeah. I think just more, more knowledge. So, so to go back, I think school choice is going to happen, whether it's you know, official or not, because mm -hmm. parents are going to say, but, but unfortunately that's not always an option for certain kids. And sure. so they're, they're going to get the short end of the stick. So. Well, and, and, and a thought on that too, that's, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people, I know nearly all of our close friends, either homeschool or have their kids in private school. And what we can tend to do at that point is just kind of disengage from paying attention to what's happening in our public schools, which is the absolute wrong posture because this is the next generation that is being, you know, coming up in the public school school system, you know, nearly, mm -hmm. I don't even know what percentage it is, but at least 80% of kids probably are in the public schools. Um, and that's something that is incredibly important because this is the world that we're going to live in. And yes. it's important for those kids too. If we are truly living the gospel, we want what's best for all of those children in the next generation, not just our own and, um, and the world that we're going to live in as well. And so it's important to stay engaged and to pay attention. One other thought that I had is, like you said, it buried, um, you know, the, the school board meetings that I've been to, I'm a little fascinated by the lack of information that is shared. <laughs> so I assumed that I was going to show up and it was going to be like, we're going to read through this whole thing and, you know, everybody's going to hear all the details or, or at least it's going to be available in a handout form or whatever, right? Some sort of, you're going to actually be informed. Instead, it's like these bullet points on a slideshow. And I'm like, that's it. That's, that's what, that's what this, all the people in this room are going to be presented on that then they're going to vote on. And it's like I had so many questions just in the from the five bullet points that were given. Right. And um, so the transparency, like you said, is a big problem. And, and again, this is not specific to our our school system. It, it's, everywhere. it's everywhere. Um, and so as parents, we need to be looking to those candidates that are saying we want the parents engaged. We want to represent the parents. We want to bring the information to the community so they know what's going on, like you're saying. And in closing, Sarah, I'm so proud of you and thankful to have been able to get to know you better and um, for the fight that you're fighting for our kids, because it would be a whole lot easier for you to not do this. And so um, thank you so much for sharing today and for the work you're doing and best of luck to you and your campaign. Okay. Thank you so much, Emily. And um, I just really appreciate the opportunity to come talk to you guys. Thank you. Have a great one. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.